John, pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I think I wanted to start off by asking, who is Sean? Who is Sean to everyone watching out there? What, what is it you do and why have I brought you on today, really? Well, thank you so much for inviting me on, firstly. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, who is Sean? That's a really good question. I feel like almost embarrassing like answering it. But um, <laughs> I guess the, the thing that I like to stand for most at the moment is... Um, being a champion of men's mental health or mental health in general. Uh, I'm the founder of a technology company called Mind Data. Um, and I'm sure we'll come on to that a little bit later. Um, but my life's mission is to improve the mental well-being of one million people around the world. So if there's one thing that I would love people to to kind of think of me, that that would be it, yeah. that life's goal. That would be pretty cool, I think. Can you tell us a bit more about Mind Data and what sort of the journey that led to Mind Data? Because you worked... You had a job before in HR, I read, yeah. and now you're sort of mental health technology space, would you say? Yeah. More technology and like mixing technology and mental health. Can you tell Agreed. us about Mind Data and, and yeah. what, what the work is you guys are doing? Yeah, of course. So Mind Data is, is a, a web-based platform that um, supports both the professional and the client or patient on so basically both sides of the table, if you will. So if we start with the, the client or patient ends of things, what we do is we provide them with a digital journal that enables them to track how they're feeling and why whenever they need to, as many times a day as they like. And then what we do is we, we take this insight from the, the journal, the experience tracker, and we share that directly with the professional. And the idea is that with this insight, we can have more effective therapy-related conversations. Um, and you know we've also bolted on a few other uh, pieces of um, technology to support the professionals, such as you know secure note taking, scheduling of appointments, you know things like that to help them run their businesses smoother. So fundamentally, our technology uh, supports human to human therapy. Our, our number one goal is to not replace humans. Mm. You know, it's to facilitate and enhance that relationship. So that's what Mind Data does. So sort of like helping therapists and the person seeing the therapist like better understand what's going on in your day to day life. So it's not just going to a therapy session and running through, they can keep track of what's going on day to day. A bit like a diary in a way for the therapy. Is that, is that the yeah. awesome? It, it, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And to, to provide a bit more of a human lens on that, it, mm. was, it was a lived experience for me. So I was a big fan, still I'm a big fan of journaling. But the challenge that I have or had while paper-based journaling was most of those thoughts that I wanted to capture weren't conveniently kind of there when I had my, my paper-based journal kind of thing. So I wanted to be able to improve the accessibility for capturing your thoughts, and that helps improve my self-awareness, and I, I know the type of week that I've had. But also, as you quite rightly said, it means that my therapist can say, Sean, good to see you. I know the type of week you've had. Did you want to pick up on either of these things? Um, and obviously, as a person-centered therapist, they may want me to lead the conversation. So, you know, I may say, well, actually, I'd like to speak about this, and that's great. But just having the therapist know that can help have more of effective conversations. Obviously, we, we spoke behind the scenes a bit. Um, we had a Zoom call, and I got to know a bit about you, and I was just, like, wowed by sort of the journey you've had could you tell everyone a bit about you know dig into the past of why you started mind data and mm -hmm. the journey you've had and the mental health issues that you've now 
been able to sort of take back control of and, and learn from and be able to help people out there who are struggling at this point of time. Yeah, thank you. It means the world. Thank you. It's um, It's been, you know, most people have mental health challenges, right? So I'm certainly not unique or special. But yeah, my, my, uh, my experience started way back in 2015, um, where after my middle brother lost his girlfriend, Holly, to a brain tumour, um, I kind of buried all of my emotions, tried to support my mum and brother, kind of this strong silent, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually that bubbled up, as, as is true of most mental health things, where you try to bury them. They'll come out in one way. It could be addiction. Uh, it could be you know self-abuse. It could be so many different things. My flavour ended up becoming suicidal depression. So um, kind of my, my experience from that with Betty, my therapist, saving my life and changing my life, that's where I then said, hey, do you know what? I need to make it my life's mission to pay this good work forward if I can. Yeah. So that's where my mental health journey started from suicidal depression in 2015. We talked about Betty on Zoom. Can yeah. you, can you tell yeah. everyone a bit about her? And I know she's passed away. She now, has, hasn't she? Her, yeah. And I love that you're sort of passing on the torch and you're you're taking that over from her and you've learned from her. But I think people like Betty are people that aren't appreciated as much as they should be in the world. They, they go under the radar and they help people every single day. And when you talked about her, after we got off the call, I was a bit like, I would have loved to have met someone like a Betty, you know? And I think it's such a privilege that you had that in your life and you're able to pay that forward and sort of be the Betty for everyone struggling out there now. Can you tell us a bit about her and what she did for you? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think firstly, you're right. Yeah, therapists generally, they're, they're kind of these silent supporting actors in the background, you know, of, of all of our lives. and. Um, I think that, you know, shining a light on more therapists in the world is, is only going to be a better thing. But Betty was an amazing woman. She, I think from memory, she used to be in the US Air Force, I think. She was from Arizona and she, she married a, a British guy. They, you know, she moved over to, to England and I went to university and, and Buckingham, which is a tiny little university that most people probably haven't heard of. Um, but that that's where I was then introduced to student welfare. You know, it wasn't really directly to, to Betty initially. It was al- almost like a random selection, right? You kind of in-house welfare mm-hmm. counsellors and happened to be very lucky that I was given uh, access to, to Betty um, and so she had this amazing kind of you know Arizonian accent and you know she she was very cool calm and collected and you know always had this kind of warm empathetic smile and again I know most counsellors would yeah. but she was she was someone that we kept in touch after I finished uni and she from my knowledge at least she, she never had children uh, and, you know, for multiple different reasons, who knows, choice, health, it doesn't really matter. But she used to always sign her emails off as love mom to me. Um, so she always say, my dear son, Sean, blah, 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 you know, love mom. And obviously this is where she was long after my counsellor and therapist. So kind of formed a slightly different relationship afterwards mm-hmm. and we kept in touch. And um, and as you said, eventually those emails just stopped and, and it turned out that she, she did pass away. It's the little things, isn't it? It's the little things you remember, like mm-hmm. the, that ending stuff, which I love. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about your uni experience? What was your mental health problems? I don't want to say problems, but the experiences you went through, was that triggered end of school? Was that triggered through university? Or what, what was the time of that? And how did you, you know, at that time of your life, be able to cope with these pressures? Obviously, you had Betty helping you. Mm-hmm. But what what else? Was, it, were you, was university struggle for you? Because I've just finished and... You know, I struggled for a lot of it, but I was able to sort of take back control towards the end. And now I'm here and I'm have, I have this podcast and yeah. I'm doing what I'm doing. And they've been great lessons. And I think university teaches you a lot about yourself. Mm. But I'd love to know, like, what was your experience like? Would you go back and be thankful? Not thankful, but what you went through and 
what, what, what happened there for you? Yeah, I, I think firstly, not to diminish anybody's experience of depression and, and suicidal depression, but um, I actually now think that I was gifted depression. Um, and, and again, that's really not to belittle it. But if you can go through any kind of traumatic experience like that and then use it for maybe your own growth, number one, but also if you have the ability to maybe pay that forward and help others, even better. Um, so my, weirdly, I'll come at this from a slightly different angle, actually. I actually found that I did better at university, the studying side of it. I think because I was depressed, that sounds really weird. Yeah. But I'm quite um, a, a tightly strung person that overthinks everything. You know, I'm very distracted very easily. And actually, I found that to some degree, when I was suicidal and depressed, I was very numb to a lot of things. I kind of shut down a lot, a lot of uh, my life. And actually, that enabled me to just coldly focus on a lot of my studies, weirdly. Mm -hmm. um, now, granted, when it became acute, you know, you get these kind of periods. Obviously, like I did not concentrate. I was absent minded. So there, there were these peaks and troughs. But generally, I would say that um, my experience at, at university, I was lucky that I was suicidal at uni because I had access to student welfare. Mm -hmm. God knows what that would look like had I been in an apprenticeship job or something where I was like, well, you're on your own effectively. You've got a 12 week waiting list on the in the NHS or you pay with money that you don't have mm -hmm. to go see a private therapist. I actually genuinely do not know what I would have done. So I was really lucky to be at university during that, I think, as a net emotion. Yeah. What's your view on, obviously, university as a whole <laughs> is, is great. And I loved it. It was, it was an awesome experience. Yeah. But I know a lot of people struggling with mental health problems are struggling a lot at uni in terms of loneliness, being away from family, being away from a support network. How far were you away from home? Because this is something I was incredibly blessed with is I was about 20 minutes from home. And the times I was struggling, I was able to be like, mum, dad, I'm not in a good headspace. Can I come home for a bit? And they're like, yeah, of course. And that was my sort of out. But I know a lot of my friends and a lot of people that mess with me on DM, they don't have that chance. They're three, four hours away from home and they have to just, they, they're away from their support network. What, what was that like for you? Were you were you close to home at that point or were you, were you sort of struggling a bit in silence? And obviously you, have, you keep going on about the, the counselling and the therapy mm -hmm. and that's perfect. But that support network for you, were, were you able to have that at home? So not really at home, actually. So for multiple different reasons, you know, so for the backdrop, my, my parents divorced when I was when I was a teenager. Um, and so my dad moved a long way away. He was down in uh, Tunbridge Wells in Kent. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's quite a long way when you're up near Cambridge or, or Bucking where I was studying. And we, we weren't really that close at that time. We've actually rebuilt a lot of our relationship now as two kind of men and adults, which is great. Um, but was never really that close to dad, so I wasn't that open with him. He probably didn't really know what I was going through. My mum had uh, become like remarried, and you know, for one one reason or another, I wasn't. It wasn't really an option for me to go home. Actually, even though university recommended I go home, I, I didn't. Um, so I actually ended up going to my brother's girlfriend's mum's house. She actually hel helped me because mm -hmm. uh, that was the only kind of point of refuge that I really had at that point. Um, I had. Some really good friends at, at uni, um, Jordan and Matt were my two closest friends uh, there, and, and they were really supportive. But I would say on the whole that I wasn't actually a very open person during yeah. that time. So people can only help what they know, you know, what they know about you effectively. So I, I, there were people that were in my life that were there to, to support me, but I don't think that I set myself 
or them up for success. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't an I didn't really understand what I was going through. Yeah. I wasn't I wasn't open with them. And God, if I look back, I wish I had. You know, I was at the time my first half of uni. I also had a at the time a long term girlfriend as well. And you know, God knows that I did not open up to her as much mm-hmm. as I should have done. There was a whole a whole mess of a, a world that I was in. Um, so I know that the support was there but I didn't make the most of the support. So it kind of felt like it wasn't there, even though it absolutely was at the time. In terms of being open about your problems and talking about them, therapy, et cetera, do you think that's something that's come with age and maturity? Or, because I I went through a good three years of like really bottling it up Mm -hmm. and really struggling and being like, I really want to tell someone, I don't want to burden anyone Mm -hmm. with my problems. And when I did start talking around you know, 18, 19, which is, which is really young still, Yeah, is 18, 19, I did start talking. I was like, oh, I saw a therapist. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, this is getting a bit easier every time. Yeah. And that three years, I, I, re- I don't regret not speaking about it, but it comes to a point where I was like, I really wish I did earlier and I would have been able to take back control. What's your view on sort of like opening up about things for the people that are struggling out there to have the confidence to go and be like, I've got a problem. Is that something that comes with maturity or have you just got to take that step no matter what age you are? I actually think that there is a there is a balance of maturity, but you're a really good example of you don't need to age-wise be mature to, to have that realisation and open up. Mm. So I think it comes down to like emotional maturity. You could be an emotionally intelligent 12-year-old that was raised in a way that you could open up or you only do it in your 70s. Um, for me, it was very much like Betty helped me open up because she was the first person to not ask how I was feeling, but why I was feeling it. And at the time that blew my mind. I was like, no one's ever asked me, why are you feeling a certain way? So I think there is a degree of maturity through life experiences that help. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there is a, a big issue that I had and I can relate to a lot of this. And I think it is more closely linked to us being men where we are raised intentionally or unintentionally to be strong and silent, you don't want to be a burden, you're, you know, you're here, there's the provider effectively, dot, dot, whatever it is, boys don't cry. Um, and so I was never raised in a way to be able to say, hey, I can just cry and open up. Mm-hmm. There was a big amount of guilt that I carried to be like, I can't put this on my brother. I can't put this on my girlfriend. And my advice now to my younger self or anybody else is, it's actually the inverse. People that love and care about you, they want to be there yeah. to support you. They all do. And we know that's true because we would want to support loved ones. So um, kind of flip that on its head. Uh, you, you're almost denying that loved one an opportunity to help you yeah. by not opening up. So it's easier said than done to open up. But that's the number one thing I wish I had done. I was older than you. I was like 24 mm-hmm. at uni. So I wish that someone had just taught me that life lesson to say, please open up they want whoever they are they want to be there to support you yeah i love that in terms of what you're doing now i'm really interested in as a ceo and founder that's a stressful job incredibly stressful job and i have a lot of respect for you for doing that in terms of stress and like looking after your mental well-being um, at this current point is there anything in particular you'd highlight which is working for you or is it just been more therapy and you know being open about your problems 
it's definitely the most stressful thing that I've ever done. Yeah. I absolutely, I think it's more stressful in many ways that I, than I had ever anticipated it being. I mean, even now, just this morning before coming here, you know, I'm waking up at 4 a.m. most mornings mm-hmm. with with different types of stresses, um, because being a founder, it's the fir- it's the, the first type of role that I've ever had where there is no line between job and your personal life. You know, the the decisions you make financially to invest into a company to give up your income, whatever it is. They're knocking at your door all the time, whether it's I can't remortgage my house because of, you know, they're saying you don't have an income, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's your credit score dropping, you know, blah, 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 your life savings being depleted. Um, it's very visceral and very real. And so my advice firstly, and I know you didn't ask this, but my first advice is to anybody thinking about setting up a company is because it's going to be like omnipresent in your life, in every little nook and cranny, mm-hmm. um, make sure you're doing a business that you're at least passionate about yeah. because is illogical. It doesn't actually make sense to like jack in your job and, and risk quite a lot of your life to start something. So at least make it meaningful so that you do push through. Um, but definitely, I guess, a degree of emotional intelligence, being more aware of these stresses, opening up to my fiance now, whether it's my therapist, my investors, just being as open as possible mm-hmm. on this journey that this isn't like the Mark Zuckerberg social network, yeah. you know, billion dollar companies. It's hard work. And yeah. most people that are in your network will probably get that it's just hard work. There's a lot of sacrifice that comes with this. And, you know, I think my my stresses definitely peak when I try to restrain them. You know, I try mm-hmm. to put a bit of a veneer on it. And, you know, that's where, so just kind of opening up is really, really important. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd say, yeah. You said about sort of like a work-life, personal life, you don't really get the separation. And I kind of see that in what I'm doing mm-hmm. is it's 24-7 really, it's seven days a week, I'm yeah. getting, you know, meshes on the Saturday evening yeah. being like, can you help with And completely fine, I love, I'd love to. Cool, yeah, yeah. But yeah. separating that personal life and business life is, is hard. What advice would you give? You know, I'd, I'd love advice personally, but what advice would you give to me mm-hmm. who's sort of starting out? You've gone through all the, you know, laying the foundations yep. and, and all that hard stuff. Now now you're on your way and you're going. What advice would you would you give to me that's, that's at that starting block ready to get going? I would say, and this is all easier said than done, take this advice with however, because I don't yeah. want to be hypocritical because I know that I don't live by this all the time. Mm-hmm. I think being deliberate is really, really important. Conscious and deliberate actions so when you're switching off deliberately consciously switch off so one of my big things i still do it now i might be switched off watching netflix to the outside world you know recharging and i'm not because i know my mind wanders Mm -hmm. so trying to really pull yourself back and be present in those moments whether it's walking your dog whether it's you know having a few drinks with your friends be present and really try to recognize that this is a moment where i'm consciously not thinking about work and this is good for me the other thing is this idea of false economy um i think in there's a lot of um hustle grind culture that's glamorized yeah i'm not that big on stuff like that i don't think think life works like that in my opinion and you know if it works for others and it it gives them motivation i love it like i I want everyone to succeed i have no you know i don't want anyone to fail everyone deserves to you know have a good life and do something that they love to do but like you said this hustle culture for me is just like it doesn't work for me i i'm i'm picturing the long term the step-by-step for the 1% better every day. I'm not picturing that big jump, just made loads of money, 
let's go post fast. That's just not my mm-hmm. personality. I'm, I'm sure that's not yours either. No. And, no. Yeah, I'd love, to, I'd love to, sorry to interrupt on that point, but I'd love to hear your view on that. And I, I have a feeling it'll be quite similar to mine. Yeah, I, 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 you're right. I absolutely agree with you. I think that's that's really important. I think what we need to try to do is is let go of the grind culture of like, hey, if you're not grinding like 24 hours, if you're not up at 4 a.m., you're not a real entrepreneur, a real mm-hmm. founder. And I think that, I think to some degree, there is some truth to that. Maybe it's not a, not an ethos that I live by. Um, there are times where you need to be up and doing, you know, longer hours or whatever. But um, if you're in the, like you said, the long run of this, there's only certain amount of years, months, quarters that you can do that. At what point are you making the trade off of your personal relationships, your health even? And I think it's also not spoken enough about to say, hey, I do 18 hour days. But how efficient are you for those 18 hour days? Are you are you really on it for those 18 hours or does it just sound good because you're like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a grinding, you know, entrepreneur and I'm yeah. hustling. Um, my old company, Clearview, this HR technology company, Stuart Hearn um, was the CEO before we exited and he's now an investor and my personal mentor and someone that I really do look up to on a personal and professional life. And he made a decision very early in Clearview's trajectory of having, how did, what did he call it? Responsible growth? Mm-hmm. It was something like that. Maybe that's not right. But just responsible growth. You know, we can go down this idea of raising millions of VC funding and have this hockey stick exponential growth. But, he, you know, he had uh, adoptive children. You know, we, a lot of people in the company had families. And we made that decision quite early to say, we're going to grow this. But ethically, we're going to grow this sensibly so that we don't make these trade-offs because... You know, if, if we do make a success, whatever that means of the company, um, on a personal selfish level, do you want to be, you know, in your Ferrari, let's say, let's just say that's the goal, right? Yeah. You sell for millions, you're in your Ferrari, but your marriage is down the pan. You haven't seen your friends in, you know, two years. Um, on paper, with a laser focus, you've done a great job of the business. Great. But I don't think that makes a successful life. No. Um, and so trying to keep that holistic balance, spinning all these plates, I think is is really important. I'd never want to sacrifice my health in the long term for the for the company. It just yeah. doesn't make sense, for mm-hmm. example. So yeah, I'm very passionate about that of ethical growth, mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah, I love that. So obviously we were talking about uh, mentors and your personal mentors, Stuart Hearn. Can you tell us about the importance of having mentors in, as a like, as a CEO and sort of putting your ego aside and being able to learn from someone and have that guy who's or girl who's made those mistakes and you can be like, oh, let's not do that, let's not lose money here, let's go this direction. What what's what's he been like for you? So Stuart actually became my mentor before I was a CEO founder. Um, mm-hmm. So I was um, one of the first people to join Clearview, this company that he set up. So I was kind of person number three or four within the, within the company. Um, and from day one, he was my mentor, you know, teaching me lots of things, you know, about business, just uh, just as a manager at the time, really. But he's a an excellent manager slash mentor. And I think the good managers and leaders probably blur the lines they are coaches you know Mm -hmm. and and mentors so that's actually it was kind of a a gray style it wasn't like a right will you be my mentor it started way back then really um but i think it's really important because you you can't know everything Uh, and yes there are some founders out there that are probably more ego driven to to presume they probably do Mm -hmm. and it can be hard to ask for help and to say i don't know this you know there's a fine balance of being a founder in a room of investors or customers and wanting to try to appear like you know all of the answers because you want to be prepared. But 
everyone knows that's not true. So the importance for me is is having someone that says, hey, by the way, you're, you're going to discover this in year two. Do this in year one so you mm -hmm. don't get to that point, for example. You know, they are kind of your lens into the future. Um, and so that is so important for me, just to have that someone say, yeah, you're on the right path. Keep doing that make sure you do that you you know you don't want to drop the ball on on this you know get that us insurance before you talk to that whatever it is i'm like never have thought to do that yeah. so the the close thing i say is that they're kind of your lens into the future and if you can just hold on to them if they've been down this journey once twice take that advice you know yeah. and really kind of um follow them so that you don't fall into the same traps and mistakes that that they've made and you will still still make mistakes right yeah, and course, those mistakes yeah exactly and if i'm ever lucky enough to be someone's mentor in the future i'll be able to share those mistakes yeah. and, and so the domino effect goes on what was clear review like and what it was a hr type mm -hmm. business wasn't it yeah but did you learn a lot of stuff that has you've been able to bring over to mind data now yeah, I can see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Well, what type of things would you say working for a business before becoming an entrepreneur has, has helped you with? Oh, so, so many things. So if, if this answer goes on too long, just cut me off, please. <laughs> um, so I think the, the first one is it was really helpful to be, like I said, person number, well, I was the first full-time employee, actually, at Clearview, full-time outside of the founders. Um, and... You're kind of an entrepreneur, as, as they say. You've got many hats. And so you quickly need to be quite diverse in the things that you need to turn your, your hand to. Um, so that was the first lesson that I, I learned, is that you're not just pigeonholed into something. You, you better kind of turn your hand to a bit of marketing. You know, you get on that networking stand and, you know, look after customers in this certain way. Help, you know, Eddie, the lead developer, create user stories so there were so many things that I was very grateful to be that early on in a technology company that was number one um, number two was being part of you forming the culture around a company the culture will as they say I'm going to use this rubbish term that everyone uses right but it's very true culture will eat strategy for breakfast mm -hmm. and that's so true you can put any process you like but if you bring in ego-driven people arrogance you know whatever it is or step on people that will really destroy the company. It will eat itself from the ground up effectively. So forming the healthy culture and, and being able to use that shared set of values to hire the right people, so, so important. Yeah. You can train skills. You can't train people not to be an idiot, shall mm. we say. Um, so that's the, the second thing. The third thing was how to develop a technology. Mm. This idea around creating a minimum viable product um, lean principles of kind of constant iteration and feedback really really important so I'll pause there because I could keep going on no, but no, it's really interesting yeah they're the three main things that, that I'd taken from those early days at Clearview yeah. so from that now obviously you have Mind Data founder and CEO of Mind Data what type of thing well you know we, we were talking about before sorry about the ethics of Mind Data and how you're doing things ethically in turn, also with the technology side of things, can you can you go a bit deeper into that in terms of the ethics you guys are doing? And you know, it's not like a get rich quick thing. It's we're building this up very very gradually. We're doing this the right way, mm -hmm. and over time, we're going to help a million people. I'd love for you to just dig in a bit more about that because you're actually the first person to come on and and really be like, we're playing the long game here, and we're going to do this right. And I find that really interesting because that's you know that's something I I want to do with my business one day is. I don't want that quick 
you know, there's the cash, cool, done. I want it to be like, this is a legacy type thing. I'm building this up. This is my baby in a way, and I'm going to help as many people along the way. Can you talk about the ethics behind mind data and the, well, the way you guys are doing that? Yeah, of course. So, um, so firstly, I think the idea of, you know, kind of raise loads of VC funding, scale your company at hockey stick growth, just get the revenues. Don't worry about profitability or anything like that. We're just gonna have multiples of your revenue as a valuation. Those days after the pandemic are gone now. It's all about profitability and sustainability. And um, one of my investors, Anthony, he you know he he came to me a month or so ago and said, you need to get to a default alive position. So this idea of saying if you don't raise further funding, can your business sustain itself? That's mm-hmm. quite alien, you know, five years ago to high growth technology companies yeah. just keep funding this thing make a loss because all the money is going back into r&d and growth 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 at all costs effectively um I'm paraphrasing i know that not, that's not strictly true for every company but that was part of the startup uh, ethos now it's shifted on its head it is about you know sustainability profitability sensible growth within reason um and so that's a big part of of my foundation for this company i don't want to you know, just bloat this thing out with massive amounts of millions of funding at, at all costs. So that's number one. That's really important. Um, number two, um, my first hire, if you will, at Mind Data was Jan Zambrini, and he's the director of information ethics. And so it was really important that the way we literally built Mind Data with the way we handle data, the way we handle privacy, you can meet the legal requirements here. But sometimes that's not always the ethical way. So an example would be, well, we've legally built into our privacy notice that we can anonymize your data and sell it to Google. It's not illegal. If you agree to it, we can do that. Okay. But it's not the ethical way of handling it, for example. Yeah. There's, a, there's, a, there's a delta there. So we, we overshot the legal requirements and aimed for an ethical compliance. How do we ethically handle it? So Jan came on to help us build the architecture of admin privileges for example end-to-end encryption the 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 way you transit the data so all of that being said that's just a really important ethos of where we can we should always go above the minimum legal requirement and handle our customers our employees our data our users ethically Mm. really really important Um, and the other thing is maybe it's not quite the ethical thing but i'll tag this on about this growth side of things one quite common question that I get asked on LinkedIn is where typically quite a, a punchy mentor, uh, exited a few times, um, those kinds of personalities, they might come on and say, hey, Sean, great to be connected. Only a million people? You know, and, you know they, they're obviously like they're, they're great personality owners because they're these drivers, right? They're these people of like shoot for the moon, you know, millions nothing nowadays. Probably a good argument to say that it's not, you know, in this day of billions and hundreds of millions. It's a little entrepreneur like me that's like only a million. But I, I do think that that kind of feeds into, you know, let's also be realistic as well as punchy. Completely agree. Yeah. A million is a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Yeah. You know, we can look at billions of users on Facebook and Instagram, but let's be real. A million people impacted mm-hmm. is insane. If we can ever get to that, we've done a great job and then yeah. we'll move it to 10 million if we need to, or 100 million. But always keeping sensible about the way you're growing yeah. is, is really important to me. Yeah, I love that. Another thing I wanted to ask was, in terms of mental health t- site, mental health type apps and sites, mm-hmm. there's quite a lot of AI stuff coming through, which 
don't really agree with, and I know you don't agree with, what makes mind data different to all these other things? You said about the, the privacy, you know, going above and beyond, sensible growth. I'd love to hear what else you guys are doing, which, which separates you, because I, I see a huge difference, but that's because I've really, really looked into the, the background of your company and I've, I've, I've get behind it. I love it. I love the idea. From your point of view, compared to these other apps, which are sort of AI-led type things, what, what makes Mind Data stand out and what makes it different? Well, I think, I think the number one thing is when you start a company, whatever it is, you, you kind of create these subconscious pillars that you build your company on mm -hmm. one of these pillars is we will never replace the human to human connection our sole job is to use technology in the right ethical way to magnify and amplify the human connection really really important because when i first was thinking about creating mind data i looked into creating a chatbot you know therapist in your pocket mm -hmm. kind of thing and with my lived experiences i quickly thought I would never have made the progress with a chatbot that I would have made with Betty, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I think they have their places. It's, I'm not diminishing that, you know, people who need, you know, immediate help and they can't, they, they provide massive value, just not the, the way that I would yeah. want to build mind data. So the number one thing is that our technology always facilitates that human to human connection. And number two is, I think the most effective technology is the thinnest. I call it thin technology. If you can almost have this invisible thin, it doesn't really get in the way of this. It just kind of facilitates with insight and data. Really, really you know, important for the, the way we build that. Yeah. Um, the, the thing, and we'll come on to maybe the future of my data in a minute, but yeah, we will be using AI, interestingly. Yeah. So I'm certainly not like a, an anti-AI person, but... Again, do you just throw the equivalent of ChatGPT at this thing? Yeah. Probably not. That's not mm -hmm. the way we'd want to do it. But yeah, that's that's our ethos. Obviously, you just touched uh, touched on it. Then, what are your long term goals going forward for Mind Data? And as a businessman as a whole, well, is there anything else that's mm -hmm. interesting you that you could sort of add on, or you've yeah. seen and you've been like really interesting, slightly different, or is mm -hmm. it is it all tunnel vision for Mind Data right now? I think it's it's. I've probably, it, weirdly, I'd say it's like a tunnel vision on being open-minded, which is a rubbish answer. But it, it's, uh, you never know what's going to happen in the next 18 months. Mm -hmm. If I think back at three years ago, what's what's Alexa, for example? What's ChatGPT? These things have changed our, certainly changed my life. I use these things every day. So I don't know what technology will do in two years. And I'm quite excited about being able to leverage this to amplify human support. Um, but my my vision is we're already building out AI dashboards to help create better AI-driven insights mm -hmm. to help the professional or the person going through support um, get to these aha moments quicker, these did you know moments, you know, and, and technology used in the right way can speed and that pr uh, quicken that process yeah, yeah. up. So I think that's, that's number one. That's what we'll be doing more of in the future that we're already building. Number two is integration. Uh, I think that the more you can make... Um, access to mind data in our world, uh, holistic, the better. So whether it's integration with WhatsApp, is it integration with, you know, within social media feeds, you know, by partnering with Meta, for example. So I'm, I'm talking very lofty here, as you could yeah, imagine. Yeah. But, you know, can you give yourself a quick check in midway through your 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 newsfeed, for example, you know, just to make you more aware. Um, yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah, are there ways of being able to improve accessibility of journaling to people that might not be able to write? So can you integrate it with voice so you can check in with Alexa, for example? Um, you know, loads of different ways of just getting this kind of um, big data lake 
that we carry around with ourselves and funneling that in to a centralized place that enables my therapist to to pick and choose different elements to say that's interesting mm-hmm. every time tom exercises we see that actually two days later his mental health increases for example it's interesting when he's in this place so you know there's a lot of uh, different ways that we can continue to leverage technology the ultimate goal is to actually be acquired um my my goal would be to be acquired by google or headspace health for example um not just because oh it's this great idea of selling for millions we'll come on to that in a minute but I think it's being able to take, you know, take mind data to a certain point and then put it in the hands of someone with enormous resources and technological capabilities and amplifying that up to a billion people, for Mm -hmm. example. And I'd I'd love to stay on and be part of that to be head of product or whatever at mind data, just to be able to put it in this behemoth hands to be able to say, you guys can run with this like I could never, unless impact so many more lives in ways that I could never have done on my own. So the ultimate goal is to get this to a point of being uh, being acquired, definitely. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. I love that. Thank you. I had a few, I did a little poll on Instagram and I, I wanted to touch on this and I, I, I promised everyone I'd get them in. I post a photo of your article and we just spoke about this before. You had an article uh, written about you. What was, what was the site? Was it business? Business chief. Business chief. Yeah. And I read it the other day and I just like, obviously we've met each other for the first first time properly now. We were called on Zoom, but I read it and I was like, go on, Sean. Like, this is, <laughs> this is what you want to see. And, you know, I love when people do well. What was that like for you, having that article written about you? And then after that, I'll, I'll read a few questions that people have, have wanted me to ask as oh, well. Oh, cool. People have asked questions. Yeah, they, they have. I did a little poll so cool. on my story and yeah. had a few, a lot of like young entrepreneurs being like, I'll touch on it after, yeah. but uh, there's a lot of stuff about investment and, okay. and what that's like cool. as well. And, yeah. But yeah, what, what, what was that article like for you in terms of like confidence boost, in terms of looking back at what you've gone through and mm-hmm. being like, yeah. you know what I'm I'm doing it I'm, I'm, I'm here I'm, I'm, I'm succeeding in what I'm doing I, it's definitely an out-of-body experience um yeah. it felt like to me being on the cover of Forbes mm-hmm. and I know that's ridiculous there'll be people listening to this that probably have been on the cover of Forbes uh, and maybe one day I'll look back and be like oh Sean you thought you'd made it or whatever yeah. and I don't think I've made it by by any stretch but it was a real highlight um I said to you like during during our break like I think that if my suicidal 25 year old self Mm -hmm. had seen this article it would have made my year i you know could not have believed that that's me you know the ceo is firstly i'm not a ceo i'm just sean you know so it was a real uplifting amazing moment Mm -hmm. being very vulnerable and, and real with you my biggest challenge that i have is enormous imposter syndrome and i have an amazing ability if, if i could be paid for this skill i'd be a millionaire but this ability of riding a high and then quickly saying put that away you, you're nothing you're you know you're, you're not really that successful get back to it people are going to be judging you you know th- there's this fear of people thinking that i have an ego or i'm arrogant so I, I always find it hard to celebrate too much. Mm-hmm. I internally do. I feel over the moon like a child. But then I'm quickly like, right, carry on, move on. People might think yeah. you're up yourself. And I have a horrible fear of, of doing that. So it, it's this real kind of roller coaster. But that article, that, you know, and shout out to, to Tom for writing that. Like I, that's made my, made my year. Yeah, I was, was so awesome. over the moon. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. In terms of questions, I was like, there were two questions 
um, uh, quite a lot of them were around the same topic. I had about eight people ask questions, but two really stood out to me. And one, I was starting this one, was, how, how old are you now? Are you 33. 33 yeah. now. Yeah. And it was, at the age you are now, so 33, what advice would you give to yourself looking back on the problems you went through at university and, and around 24, 25 when you were suicidal? Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to yourself in what you know now? Number one is recognising that you're not a burden. I know we said that earlier. Mm -hmm. Really important. My God, like you are not a burden, Sean. Just open up to your girlfriend uh, at the time, your brothers, your friends. That you, just open up and be vulnerable. There's no shame in that. It might be uncomfortable. Granted, I'm not saying it's easy. But at least go with that without the feeling of guilt. You're not going to be. Just open up. So that's number one thing. Open up and be very transparent. Um, if you can... Go to therapy, Sean. You know, go to therapy before you need it. Therapy's great. <laughs> the best thing I've ever done. And would you agree? Yeah, the same. it is. It Honestly, is. I, I think that a bit like working out and going to the gym, you don't need to be injured or overweight or anything like that to go to the gym. You just do it for maintenance because it's great. You keep on top of things. Same with therapy. It's like this kind of um, mental exercise, if mm -hmm. you will. Me mental maintenance, I've heard it called before. So Mental maintenance. Yeah, I mental like maintenance. Yeah, you just keep on top of things. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't need to be depressed to, to go to therapy. It's yeah. the best thing ever. So that's, that's probably where I fell short was, sorry to interrupt. No, but no, no, please. I went when I felt bad, but when I felt good, I was like, I don't need it again. When it's actually not the case, because you're going to drop off again. It's just, like you said there, you said it way better than I could, mental maintenance, keeping it at that level where you don't have these huge drop-offs. Yeah. That was something I learned, so I'd love to hear about that as well. I totally agree with you, absolutely. Because when we're riding high, you, you genuinely feel like you don't need it. But I think that's the problem. Not, not with you, with mm. me, if with everybody, with life. There is this feeling of, needing to go to therapy if, if you say to the average person i'm in therapy their first reaction would be my god what's wrong are you mm -hmm. okay and it should just not be that you know if, if i said to someone oh, i'm getting a personal train i'm going to the gym no one would say my god are you sick they'd be like good for you and i, th I would love it if we could change society to be like i'm going to therapy I'm like awesome man good for you yeah that's great you know and not feel judged in the way not exactly because it shouldn't be a judgmental thing and and it's only a judgmental thing because most people like me mm. like you at the time go to therapy when you're a one or a zero out of 10. Mm -hmm. We should be going when we go from a nine to an eight. Um, so I'd say that, you know, going to therapy, really, really important. Um, and checking in with yourself and just, uh, we have the answers with our own minds. You know, Betty never gave me answers per se. She was just that catalyst to ask me the right question and say, what do you think? To that? And we all know really what we need to do to be better. We may ignore it, mm -hmm. but we can. We are our best therapists. And so taking time to sit on your bed, meditate, journal, and just ask yourself the, the questions that we all know we're not asking mm -hmm. you know, ourselves. We bury those. Of what can you do to, that you should be doing to improve your, your relationship, your marriage? You know that you should probably be doing this to improve your business, right? That thing that you're ignoring. We all know in the back of our minds and just kind of bringing those to the light and having the hard conversation with myself, really, really important. Yeah. So there would be the three things that I would say to, to Sean at 24, 25. Yeah. And secondly, and this is a question I wanted to ask anyway, so thank you so much. I said I keep the questions anonymous, but you know who you are if you're listening to this question, so thank <laughs> you. In terms of investors, what, what was that like as an entrepreneur who, who had this idea of mind data, going to investors, being vulnerable in a way, being like, this is my story, 
and, and pitching to them and, and getting their investment. What is that like? Because that's something I've never done and it's something I will do one day and I'm incredibly nervous for. Like that, that's a daunting experience to go and stand in front of people and be like, this is my story and this is my company. I'd love for you to invest. What, what, what was that like for you in, in sort of telling these people your story and, and pitching it to them? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is it is very exposing in mm-hmm. so many different ways. Um, you're exposing your story, your background, your ideas, and you're inviting people to understandably critique it. And it's so hard. And especially as, I can only speak for me, but as someone that can be very sensitive to how what people think of me, um, I, I'm definitely a people pleaser growing up. Like that's, that's a big thing. And I'm worried about people not liking me and things like that. Um, I, I get nervous around like negative feedback. It's a bad mm. thing when someone says, yeah. can I be honest? My heart sinks. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, what have I done? You yeah. know, it's very rarely, can I be honest? Mm-hmm. You're the best person I've ever met. It's very rarely that they say that, right? It's yeah. usually, can I be honest? You're not, you're not doing it. Oh no. So um, recognizing that is, it is nerve wracking, but that's universal. You know, I think I'd, I'd challenge anybody, especially if they're a first time founder and they said, yeah, I went through fundraising and it was, it was easy. You're lying. You're mm-hmm. absolutely lying. You may not want to admit it, but of course it's scary. And, and just embracing the fact that that can be it is, is really important. But um, I think the, the other side of it is just to recognize that actually these people, you're not going to get 100 yeses. In fact, the exception is going to be a yes. Most people will say no. And I would say if you are raising money, a no from an investor can be for so many reasons other than not believing in you personally. Now, granted, there may well be, there will definitely be people that heard my story, looked at me and was like, there's no way I'm backing this guy. A hundred percent, you know, I'm not Elon Musk. Um, But there'd be so many reasons. Maybe they, you know, maybe they're like, I'm just not into mental health. I'm into fintech. This isn't for me. Or I'd rather invest in a company that's generating revenue, come back in a year, whatever it is. Or I've just found out that my wife's being made redundant. So actually the amount of liquid cash I've got, I'm gonna have to hold back, sorry. So many reasons for a no um, and not taking it personally. That's And that took me a long time because, my God, I reached out to people that I used to work with, great relationships, and, you know, they'd come back and say, it's a no. God, are we not friends anymore? Do you not like me? Do you not believe in me? And that's just not true. So recognising that you will hear no's far more than yeses, and that's okay. It's not a reflection of you. So I would say that that would be my initial advice. There's lots more we can talk about, but... Those two main things that, that I took from my funding yeah. journey. That's awesome. I think I'm gonna we'll wrap this up here because okay. I'm wary of time. Yep. But if people want to get in contact with you mm-hmm. uh, after watching this podcast, uh, what social medias you on? Promote yourself. I, lo- I love people to message you and cool. you know let, let them know the thoughts on the podcast. And yeah. I get a lot of positive feedback, which I try to send over to oh, people. Great. Yep. But um, I'd love for people to get in contact with Sean on Instagram or whatever. Whereabouts can people find you? So um, on, on LinkedIn, Sean Ruane, mm-hmm. um, that, that's a place that I share a lot of my story, quite open on, mm-hmm. on the founder's journey and the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. So if that's your thing, LinkedIn. Um, on Instagram, yeah, I never get this right. It's uh, Sean Ruane underscore, I Sean think. Underscore. Yeah, I th- I, yeah, annoying about the underscore, but that's, that's the, the Instagram side of things. Um, or my email, feel free to reach out at sean at minddata.io s-e-a-n at minddata.io so my inbox is always open so if anybody ever wants to ask more questions about 
entrepreneurship, uh, fundraising, or mental health, or anything in between. And I'm absolute open book, so they'll be the main reason. The way to reach out. Amazing, Sean. Thank you so much. Thank you.